Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. So we have been continuing our series called For Heaven's Sake, and you're probably aware of the time this morning, and I'm going to be uh, brief. Um, I condense things very much in the first service, so I'll plan to do here as well, so um, don't worry. Um, Would anybody like to score in the football game before I get started? (laughs) So please, 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 on the way out today, do not tell us the score. Um, Many of us like to record the game, and and it doesn't help if someone has said, oh, pastor, guess what? Um, So thank you. uh, Thank you for that. So we're continuing our series called Dying, or called uh, For Heaven's Sake, and We talked last week about living for heaven's sake. This week we're going to talk about dying for heaven's sake. But although we talk about death, we're going to mostly be talking about life in light of the fact that one out of one people die. So in our culture today, there are two dominant perspectives about life and death. That one perspective or the other changes actually the way we live our lives. You may not have thought about the fact that you have actually made that choice, but you have. Brian McLaren, in his book, A New Kind of Christian, talks about these two perspectives and their consequences for us. He says, story one goes like this. Once upon a time, the universe banged into being for no apparent reason and with no apparent purpose. Someday it will end and there will be no one left to remember it ever existed. In the meantime, we live and die, and that's about it. Story two begins with a creator who designs the universe to produce life. The creator cares about everything he has made, including us. The creator reaches out to us in many ways, constantly inviting us into a relationship of trust. When we die, we enter into the creator's presence so that in some sense, this life we now live is a prelude to a dimension of life that never dies. Now, as I mentioned, whether you thought about it or not, Each one of us has made a decision over which of these stories we believe and are going to live out with our lives, but each story has consequences. Story one, I'm aware that I'm going to die someday. What's the consequence of that? I have to cram all the experiences and pleasures I can into the limited time frame I'm allotted. Then I have to fear or flee every pain or frustration since they're wasting precious time that I wish was being filled with pleasure. What is the consequence of that? Well, I've just eliminated from my life all the pleasures that take a long time and all the virtues that require discipline and difficulty. What's the consequence of that? I become superficial, hurried, maybe frantic, always disappointed, always afraid that I won't get happy and stay happy. What's the consequence of that? Well, if I'm the only one living this way, it's bad enough. But if more and more people are living that way, it's not hard to imagine you get a world that's very much like the one ours is, fast becoming, cheapened, polluted, scarred, tense, anxious, empty, frantic. It's all meaningless in the end, so who cares? Death wipes it all away, so whatever. Now let's run through the similar thought pattern only with the second story. I understand I'm going to die someday. What's the consequences of that? I realize I should focus on things that will have value, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. What's the consequence of that? I'm able to maximize the joys of life, to slow down and really savor them, rather than rushing through them to cram the next one in. 
What's the consequence of that? I find myself being grateful for every small pleasure in this life, seeing it as a gift from God and seeing it as a preview of heaven. What's the consequence of that? I am able to see the hardships of life in new perspective too as character building opportunities to grow and develop the sinews and muscles and backbone of my soul. What's the consequence of that? I feel that the trials of this light aren't even worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed in the next life. What's the consequence of that? I feel a confidence and freedom from worry in the face of every trial, including the trial of death. What's the consequence of that? I do not live life in a hurry or in a desperate attempt to distract myself from a meaningless end. Instead, I live life to the fullest, life as God intends it to be lived. What's the consequences of that? Well, if I live it this way, it's good for me. But if I can influence more and more people to live this way, then the world will become a very different kind of place. So that in some real way, we can say we are entering in and experiencing the kingdom of God. This last piece is so important to us as a church because we as a congregation seek to see the kingdom of God come in our community. It's one of the big reasons why we're here. It isn't only for worship and what we do on Sunday morning, but it's to literally change the nature of the community and where, where we live. And we did a survey um, a while back, and, and you all were involved in 105 different helping groups in the community. I was blown away. We love to recruit you into things we do at church, but we also love to have you get in, involved in the community. When I speak to you in the church, I refer to this work we do as working for the kingdom of God, which it, it is. It's working for those things that reflect the values of the kingdom. But when I talk to secular people, I say we're about human flourishing. Because indeed, another way of expressing the kingdom, although not exclusively, is the fact that we want every human being who is created in the image of God to experience life in the kingdom and to carry that forward. Last week, you may recall, I quoted C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, where he said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world, they have become ineffective in this one. So how does this understanding change how we live and how we die? Well. We had a memorial service here yesterday for Phil Oaks. Phil would sit on the back row, and he would wear his Marine Corps cap. He was a Korean War veteran, and he was so proud of his service. We were proud of him. But what was interesting about the service is that Phil, as a Korean War veteran, was now 93 years old, but there were tears still, even though this was a wonderful homegoing and a time of reuniting with his wife. There were tears because there's a special place in our hearts for those that we love, and only those that we love can fill those special spots. And when they uh, go, we say things to each other like, I'm sorry for your loss, because it is a loss of that relationship. But the important thing to remember, however, is that it's not the end. This morning, we get an opportunity to talk about death not in the concept of a, not in the context of a memorial service, but here uh, together. And again, I, I promise I will be very brief. The three things I want to share with you. The first one is that instead of the end, death is the beginning. 
Psalm 116.15 says, When they arrive at the gates of death, God welcomes those who love him. Death is not the end, but a doorway into a new beginning. John 11.25 says, The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live, and everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. I sometimes quote in a memorial service a, a text from C.S. Lewis that is at the, the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. There are six books. The last book is called The Last Battle, and the last paragraph of the last book is so encouraging. C.S. Lewis writes, For us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the title and the cover page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Doesn't that sound like something to look forward to? Every new chapter is better than the one before. Second thing I want to share is that instead of loss, death is gain. When Paul talked to the church in Philippi, you may recall, he said, for me to live is Christ, and if you remember it, say it with me, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. In another place, Paul talks about the resurrection, and he says that the image of resurrection, the image of planting a dead seed and raising a live plant is a mere sketch at best, but perhaps it will help in approaching the mystery of the resurrection body, but only if you keep in mind that when we are raised, we're raised for good, alive forever. The corpse is pl uh, that is planted is no beauty, but when it's raised, it's glorious. Put in the ground weak, it comes up powerful. The seed sown is natural. The seed grown is supernatural. Same seed, same body, but what a difference when it goes down in physical mortality and it is raised up in spiritual immortality. I had to read in my college career, I had to read um, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. If any of you read his autobiography, and I don't know if they do it in high school here or whatever, but um, it's, uh, it, it's quite an interesting read. And at one point, he has a epitaph that he gives. Now, it's not actually the epitaph that's on his uh, tombstone, uh, but he kind of played around with this one as a potential one. He's not known as being a great Christian, but his words are actually pretty good here. He says, The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding lies here food for worms. But the work shall not be wholly lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more in a new and more perfect edition, corrected and amended by the author. Not a bad, not a bad epitaph. And then finally this morning, instead of despair, there's hope. Paul talks to the folks in Thessalonica. They were, they were worried because they, uh, they thought that... Um, they thought Jesus was going to come back before anybody died. 
But in fact, people had started to die in the church in Thessalonica, and so the people were getting nervous. What's going to happen to them when Jesus comes? What's going to happen to us? And so Paul wrote to them to sort of calm their, their fears, but in the course of doing so, um, he, he, um, he, he put it so very well. He says, and regarding the question, friends, that's come up about what happens to those already dead and buried, we don't want you in the dark any longer. First off, you must not carry on over them like people who have nothing to look forward to, as if the grave were the last word. Since Jesus died and broke loose from the grave, God will most certainly bring back to life those who died in Jesus. Paul told them to grieve. We had tears yesterday. We grieved yesterday. Many of you have lost loved ones in the last few years, and you grieve that loss in your life. But Paul reminds us we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have this amazing resurrection hope. Sometimes in a memorial service, I'll share a piece of prose called Parable of Immortality. It describes the joy of a life that doesn't end but moves on in a different dimension. Van Dyke says, I'm standing on the shore as a great ship gently glides from the harbor and sails toward the horizon. She's beautiful, sails billowing and shining bright as sunlight sparkling on distant waters. She grows smaller and smaller until at last her white sails shine as ribbons out where the sky and water mingle as one. And as I watch, a voice behind me says, well, she's gone. She's gone? Gone? No, I tell myself really gone, not really. She's gone only in the sense that I can no longer see her. In reality, she's the same as ever, just as beautiful. And deep in my heart, I know that on the other shore, someone is crying out, look everyone, here she comes. So I love the picture, and I, and I conclude with this. I love the picture of heaven that is like coming home. Heaven's pictured in a number of different ways in the scripture, but, but, but going home or coming home is perhaps the one that I like the best. It's uh, such a beautiful picture. Remember Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Trust in God, not also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go prepare a place for you, and if I prepare a place for you, I will come and get you and bring you to that place that I've prepared for you that you may be where I am. Beautiful promise that we have. And so we have this picture like heaven is going home. In 1989, I had an incredibly busy year. January of that year, I was at the U.S. Navy Chaplain School in Newport, Rhode Island, gone all month. May of the same year, I went back for the second half of the course, gone all the month of May. And then at the end of June, I had scheduled a, a trip overseas um, to Asia, and we went to Japan, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, China, and the Philippines. And uh, <clears throat> by the time we got to the Philippines, we were there for the Luzon Congress on World Evangelization, and we, we, we really uh, enjoyed that opportunity. But my colleague and I were like, man, we've been on the road so long, I wonder if we can get an earlier flight home. And by God's grace, we were able to, and we flew home. And then uh, Barb uh, and the two boys at that time, Sean was... 
six, and Ryan was four, I think. And uh, Barb and the boys picked me up and brought me home, and waiting for me was something that was so very beautiful. And Liz will put up that picture. <laughs> Welcome home, Daddy. That was, that was the greatest after all of that time away, all of that time on the road to have those little stinkers. I don't know how Sean could have done it because he wasn't really writing much then, but um, <laughs> anyway, it was beautiful. And friends, this is, this is it. This is the picture we have of heaven where we have welcome home, Roger. Welcome home, Charlie. Welcome home, Barb. We're welcomed home. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty of the plan that you have for us. The plan, Lord, that takes us from a place of sin and meaninglessness and takes us to a place of healing and hope, of meaning and purpose, and of the knowledge of where the future lies for each one of us. Thank you, Lord, for the promise of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.